0: Hey, let me clue you all into something that we just learned. On the flyer on your chair, at the bottom of it, where it says, enter for a chance to win a massive library of books, enter at that website. If you you have not gone to that website, you can do it on your phone right now, because the prize is going to be awarded at 3.30 which is the closing time of this workshop. So, in other words, if you wait until after the workshop, you will miss the deadline. Okay? So, if, if you want to enter that drawing, you, you probably should do it now on your phone. Yep. The, yeah, you can order. The table, the ordering table's all going to be good, okay? But if you want to be in the drawing for a chance to win, You probably should do that right now while you're sitting here if you haven't done it already. Now, I I, I will tell you it will still be worth it for you after the workshop to go out to our table and to enter on the iPad because on the iPad you're going to get a reply that gives you the free six marks Work uh, six marks ebook, six marks of a culture, a church that deeply changes lives, ebook. Okay, so ideally you'll want to do both. Okay, so you're going to that site, and it's not coming up. Right, exactly. See, I'm there. Well, that that's actually your search bar. You gotta you gotta type it in there. Type it in there. I, Oh, you got the same thing there. Yeah, I'll try again. Will you go out to the table and talk to Shelly and tell her? Paul just told him all of us to go. Where's your table at? You go out
1: the door. and see the table. Shelly's the blonde hair. We
0: good?
2: (laughs) All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Welcome to the second workshop series. Look at all of you dedicated people who probably want to be thinking about a nap right now. But you're here, so we're gonna try to make it worth your time. My name is Jessie Cruickshank and I work with the National Education Team out of the National Church Office as an organizational psychologist. And so I just want to welcome you to to this workshop. Um, You should all have a worksheet that someone handed you because they loved you, they handed you a worksheet. If you don't have one, raise your hand and we will love you better. We got one in the center here. Oh, behind you. Anyone else? Anyone else need a worksheet? The neuroscience is that if you take notes, you will remember 10% of what you hear instead of just five. Take notes.
1: Well, how do we go from 10 to, like, 7
2: You can hit 80% at experiential. Nope. That's why you have homework. Oh, uh, 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 baby. Awesome. All right. So will you just join me in welcoming Pete? And he's going to talk to us today.
1: Okay. Welcome, everybody. So I want you to know that we may do Q&A like 15 minutes into the session because my lunch is coming. Because <laughs> there are long lines. So you should all have a sheet. Uh, just to kind of keep us on track here, create an emotionally healthy culture and team and uh, just help us flow. I'll spend most of the time probably in the first section, really. <clears throat> um, and then we'll do is I'll, I'll talk for a while and then we'll do Q&A, uh, you know, together. So, all right, let's let's um, let's take a minute and uh, let's pray uh, together. And If you don't mind, hold on one second. I'm going to pull out a... Uh, Okay. Psalm 116, um, I'm just going to pray the Psalm of David. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Do you all know that? We all know what that's like. Then I call the name of the Lord, Lord, save me. We're here because the Lord has saved us. Uh, And not just saved us like the first time, like saved us a lot more other times. I love in verse 12, he writes, you know, what a great prayer. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Yes. And I'll sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. That's a great text. So, um, you know, we, uh, the, the, the center of uh, an emotionally of culture and team and we would say it the center of emotionally of discipleship and leadership is being with Jesus. And in particular, one of the contributions uh, I think we're bringing to culture, church culture around the world, is integrating a dimension of silence and stillness. uh, As. Core spiritual practices of the Christian life, that it's not just about us talking to God and getting information, but actually um, being with him and listening to him. So let's take. um, If you're open to it, why don't we take two minutes of being still before the Lord? And I was asked the first session, you know, she struggles. A woman said, I'm struggling with silence. It's not working for me real well. And what do I do? And there's lots of things. You know, how do I grow in that part of us? Because we all have a God muscle inside of us that longs for stillness and silence. Everyone, every I don't care how extroverted you are or what culture you come from or your age. Uh, and once that muscle begins to get used and comes alive, uh, you do find you can't live without it. So anyway, it's, it's, in the beginning it's quite difficult. Would you, be afraid, would you mind leaving those doors open just for warmth? Could someone just make sure those doors are open? I just, I, I just like the heat, if you don't <laughs> mind. It's a cold building. And um, so John Cassian, who was a great 4th century writer, and one of the desert fathers uh and if funny if you read historical theology and then you read present day theology is when you realize how americanized our spirituality has become because they wrote a lot about things like silence we write about grow the church you know and buildings and strategies and so interesting, and, and that's why it's so important to be drinking from the larger global and the historical church. It keeps us grounded and rooted and balanced. And, of course, we just tend to gravitate towards certain scriptures because it fits our culture better, and we tend to ignore other scriptures because it doesn't fit our culture very well. So anyway, what Cassian would recommend, and it's been recommended by many others over the centuries, which is we're going to be still before the Lord in communion with the living Jesus, this isn't mindfulness, which is, you know, secular folks do, or it's not Buddhism silence or Hinduism silence. It's it's silence before the Lord, relationally. And so every time you're, Cassian recommended, when you find your mind wandering and he goes, you think of it like a river, you know, all this stuff is, co- all your thoughts. Oh, I got to eat, emails, you know, who's mad at me? I got laundry to do. Um, uh, have a simple prayer, phrase or word, and when you find yourself, oh, here before the Lord, and now you start thinking about, oh, my gosh, my plane leaves at, at 6 o'clock. You know, am I going to get there on time? And, oh, you know, so pick a prayer like Jesus or Abba, something very simple, or here I, here I am, Lord. And every time you find yourself distracted, and it may be 100 times in a minute, and 100 times you come back to the Lord. You get to come back to the Lord 100 times. And it's like the Lord tapping you on your shoulder, like, hey, come on back. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, here I am, Lord. Because really, every time we're, be, we're still before the Lord, uh, we're doing a number of things. But one is we're surrendering our will to God's will. I can do this workshop and do my will. I can do this workshop and hopefully be listening for God's will. Uh, I'm receiving the love of Jesus. I'm, I'm, allow, I'm like, you know, Revelation 3.20, fill me, Lord. Come in and fill me. Because I, I can be a believer and lock him out. I can pastor and preach sermons and lock him out. And uh, I am also listening, in case he wants to say anything. I don't need a word, but I'm open to. And I I do. I I did find that when I started integrating silence, for me it was 2003. I started hearing a lot. I mean, a lot from God. Like I had no idea he had so much to say, especially about things like, why are you uptight about that meeting you're going into at three o'clock? Like it doesn't matter. You're all like pushing for something that I'm not even concerned about. It was those kinds of things, P- pretty much. I find myself doing my will, and he says, "Just let that go. you're totally off on that." And once I stopped and was silent, he would often then redirect what I was doing. So anyway, so let's let me get my time around, and and so let's take our our two minutes, and I'll be the timekeeper. So so let me invite you to. Uh, I want you to use what I do. (laughs) Think of Samuel, 1 Samuel 3. Here I am, Lord. And if I you close your eyes, take a couple deep breaths. Just be aware that your feet are on the ground, you're sitting in a chair, and you're on the earth, which is floating in outer space held up by god and you're here in this place you know now so let's begin and let's be still before the lord for two minutes let's begin amen okay thank you so um our topic is creating an emotional healthy culture and uh so i guess you know I, i might the best definition I have of culture in a simple way is that imprecise something, invisible presence or personality of a place that can be difficult to describe without actually experiencing it. It's more readily felt than articulated. So your church has a culture. Um, every company has a culture, you know, Apple, IBM. Denominations have a culture. I was joking around with the first group that was here about Foursquare has a culture. and I've spoken a few times for Foursquare. And uh, my best memories was with Jack Hayford when he was president. And the pace of the conference was a bit intense. It wasn't quite the slow, contemplative role. So you guys run hard. And obviously, your culture of fourth career is changing. You know, number of new initiatives are happening, and it needs, culture does need to shift. The world's changing, and as millennials are stepping into greater positions of power, and then you got Generation X and Y, and and then how do you, you know, what's it going to look like? But if, obviously, the culture does not shift, it will die, because my generation, which is in leadership for the most part, needs to invest and pass on to the next generation. And there are certain cultural things you want to hold on to, and others things that are, you need to discard. You have to sort out which of the ones, but... Clearly, I could tell by just being here these few days that, you know, fourth is in a bit of a shift, and it seems all great for me, you know, where I sit. So I'm going I'm to describe on the sheet there four essentials that I would consider which really make an, a, a culture, what is an emotionally healthy culture? And then I'm going to talk about uh, what is that culture? What is a, what is a, what is a large vision of a church culture on the bottom of your sheet there look like? Um, Uh, so, and if you've read the Emotionally Healthy Leader book, you'll see these four principles uh, begin to be talked about. Uh, so the first is this, that work and personal formation are inseparable. Now, when I, when I was, uh, became a Christian, I was put in leadership very quickly because I was a leader. And so, and I could speak and people would follow me. And so they just threw me into leadership. And uh, over the years, I became a pastor and leading a church. But I must admit, the question of my personal formation was, yeah, like you're responsible for that. Keep it together. But the question, all the training I got was primarily in what I could do: leadership, cycling, delegation, vision casting, mission, all that stuff. But it's all important. In the culture, they are inseparable. They, 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 that you heard this yesterday from me talk about that. That you. So what that means is. Um, I'm equally concerned. Yes, I need you to be a worship pastor or a guitar player or be able to, you know, lead this community. But at the same time, it's your inner life I'm concerned about because you're going to give out of who you are, and we're never going to get away from that. And and you can't give what you don't have. And, in fact, whatever you are is what you're giving. Like, whoever, whoever you are is what this place is going to be. That will be the culture, especially we're talking about leaders here. And uh, it was so funny because... This person, pastor came to me at their first session and said, yeah, I, I, what do you do if you have a leader who is like, uh, he needs so much affirmation. And you know, constantly, he's affirmation that he got out of bed in the morning. I said, that's pretty severe, you know, and to be in leadership. And he said, and he also goes up and down. And so uh, he's doing great for a while, then all of a sudden he takes a huge dip. And so I said, I said, it seems to me this is really more about you than him. Because you put him in leadership, he wanted to be a leader. I, I so I get it, but doesn't mean that he should be a leader. And uh, so the question is, what culture are you building? But it really comes. At, but it really comes back to him. And does he have the ability to have a conversation with this person about this may not be the best position for you right now? The fact that the guy may go off a cliff, even though he's just a small group leader. And he's, he says a couple came and said that we want to cohabitate, and he said that's fine. You know, he says. And he says, obviously that's not his position. I said, I agree, but he goes, he, li- he likes to be liked as well. I said, obviously you've a problem here. And the, it's really not him as the problem. I said, I would say it's you're the problem in the culture. And it's okay. You found these things out later. You didn't know it initially, but uh, the issue is culture, but the person's formation is, is inseparable. So um, uh, let me give, let me, so what that means is like, we're, we're, we're doing this with our leaders. We're asking, we're concerned about their development. And uh, this is messy. So, so we talk about creating emotional culture. This is, I, I, what I like about the right side, the messy hands, is because I, I know you'd like to get leaders come to you like already formed and nice and clean. I, I don't know. I, they don't exist. It's just it's, this, is, this is what we're called to do. And, uh, and so when we, when we do team building and supervision and culture, it starts with you, you know, your own vulnerabilities Um, and then, but you want to know the vulnerabilities of your team. Uh, And we'll talk about that looks like in a second. And then you shape your your supervision for both performance and and formation. You got it. So, so it's really a a different angle here you're coming. Now, if you just want to get numbers in your church or plant a certain number of churches and you just have numerical goals of measuring success, It's just not emotionally healthy culture and team building. It's just, I don't know, evangelical, Pentecostal culture. We're talking here about something very different. Uh, And uh, so I'm gonna give you an example. Dave uh, was a children's church pastor. And uh, I guess I probably met him, he was 47. And he had been a pastor of, children's pastor in like three or four mega churches around the country of uh, at least a thousand kids in his program and then staff underneath him for years. Uh, So he was pretty well known. I mean, like in the children's pastor circle thing and he would speak at conferences. And then something happened, long story. It wasn't a scandal or anything, but he ended up having to leave the pastorate and somehow ends up moving back home to Queens, New York City where I am and he starts attending our church. And at this point, he's pretty broken uh, and he's, you know, starting from scratch, and he's just coming into the church as a member, he and his wife and family, and uh, so we invite him to be part of one of the discipleship groups that we're leading, and uh, so at one point, we're doing a, a genogram. We're looking at his family of origin and how it's impacted who he is today and, and how it's going to impact his discipleship. So this was a Ten Commandment sheet. He had him, we had him fill it out, and uh, now I understand, Dave's father was a pastor. His grandfather was a pastor. His whole all Spanish Pentecostals, although he's English-speaking, but, you know, Spanish pentecostal you know, just, that's his whole life. And his wife's family as well. So this is, not, this is a family with kind of deep roots in, in the church. So here's a question we asked, you know, how'd your family do appreciations? And uh, so, again, appreciations is, 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 you know, we give thanks to God, we give God praise, but, you know, appreciations is, like, a, pretty important. He goes, ah, appreciations? Birthdays and Christmas, you got to appreciate it, basically. That's it. How'd your family do feeling empathy and feeling felt? He writes, nope. (laughs) How about anger, sadness, fear, and hurt? Anger, yelling, zip on the rest. How'd your family do affection through touch? Zero to ten years old? Yes. Ten years old and up? No. How'd your family do words? Zip. How'd your, your family do conflict? Mom complain, dad zip. You can really see he's a man of many words. Quite descriptive, good macho male. How'd your family do forgiveness? Silent treatment, it will pass. How'd your family do sex? How'd you guys talk about sex? Taboo. Children, more the merrier. Lots of cousins. Marriage, never talked about, must marry a believer. How about men's and women's roles? Men's rule, women cook my gosh. So that's Dave. So here's a guy who's been in discipleship in the church his whole life, 47 years old. That's the level of his discipleship. No scripture, been in church his whole life. And he's leading thousands of kids and adults under the – so you've got to ask yourself, and I did ask him very directly, how, how are you going to form these children into anything for Jesus? Wait, what do you, What are you forming them into? You you can only form them into that. Because that's who he is. So, I mean, he was, his whole ministry was programmed. And he was tremendous at it. And he still does some of it. I mean, he's amazing at it. He's now the children's pastor at the church. Um, But uh, I mentioned earlier that his aunt at 35 years old was killed at 9-11. And she had two small children. And... But his family did not. You remember 9/11 was like it was like the whole country was in grief and loss. Imagine his family's right in the center of it all, but they don't have a, a theology. They don't have a, they they don't have any ability to grieve what is just this catastrophic loss. They just like they didn't know what to even do. So he said basically, we took care of the kids, but we really didn't know anything about grieving and loss. It was just, there's no, and so we didn't. And it wasn't until years later when he was in this that he realized he'd never grieved it. And he he hadn't gone, none of the family had gone to the memorial on 9-11, if you've been there. It's very moving. He just couldn't bear it. So he didn't know how to feel. I mean, he didn't do feelings. So it's hard to do love if you don't do feelings. And so the kids are being entertained, but they may not feel loved. So I, you know, so he's a completely different guy. It's, now, it's a number of years later. But um, if he's on your team, uh, you know, obviously, you're going to be asking him a different set of questions. Are you moving toward that crying kid in the corner and being with him? You, you, you're, you're, obviously, his marriage was completely transformed. His parenting was completely transformed. But he had to go to a whole nother side of him in terms of to grow in Jesus. I did not need him memorizing scripture. I needed him living scripture. That's very different. So as a supervisor, I wasn't a supervisor, but uh, he, you know, he's grown quite a bit. But that's emotionally healthy culture is I care about this. I'm going to find out about this. I'm not just hiring a person who's anointed and gifted. I'm hiring a person who is being what I'm trying to build here, or at least open. I can't tell you how many times people come to me and say, oh, and I made this mistake. You hire this incredibly gifted person because I got a role to fill. I, you know, and, and, I, and I was taught, you know, I always taught in my young days as, as a pastor leader, we have tanks that need to be driven in war. That's the ministry. And I got to get someone to get in that tank. And you know what, Pete? There's going to be casualties. <laughs> this is going to be casualties. And then you got to find someone else to get in that turret and drive that tank. But that's the nature. That's the war we're in. We're in war. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then I realized I'm going to be one of those guys dying in the tank. But the 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 goal was just find someone who can drive the tank, who's willing to go to war for Jesus. And there's an element of truth in that, obviously. But if that's the whole paradigm for the culture, I don't really your inner life is secondary to me. Are you willing to be a kamikaze? Great, you're hired. You know, you can preach to. and, and the sad thing is, the bigger your church becomes, the less time I have for your inner life. I don't, because I, I just got to get, get really gifted people here. So we have in America right now, and actually not just America, it's global. We have all these incredibly gifted people who are running the largest churches. Uh, and whether it's on even wor- I, I mean, I know worship leaders. I mean, I, I just, I'm like, I'm, what do you mean? Like, you, you spend time with Jesus at, only at worship rehearsal and worship services. What about your inner life, your own life? Uh, not really. I'm like, I don't care if there's 25,000 people. I, I don't even care. Like, you're not leading worship. Because like, you're not living what we're doing. It's just, just a, a, and, but I don't have time to ask the guy the question because we have nine services. And I got, I'm just, I'm just getting the bodies in and out. And, and so we've developed an evangelical culture that this is coming up. Just so you're aware, this is a shocker. Because, yeah, you're doing sound, but I care about your life with Jesus. I care about your marriage. I care about what's going on. I'm going to ask you about it. Uh, we're not just using you to get something done. You are the ministry. So, you know, based on the commandments of your family of origin, what does someone need to ask you every week? So if you were, you know, if, if you were on our staff, you know, or you're working, even as a volunteer. Um, like my wife ran the marriage ministry at our church for years. You know, I care about what's going on with your marriage, your walk with Jesus. I mean, how's it going? And, um, and But we're going to ask people not just about their job performance, which is important, and if you're not doing your job, if you're paid, we're going to let you go. That's true. But you're, it's not just your performance of your job, it's your person. It's both. So, and, But then secondly, the elephants in the room are acknowledged and confronted. This is very important because uh, the nature of leadership, elephants are constantly coming. What that means is people are bringing into the culture, they're bringing into the culture whatever they know from the past. And generally it's gonna be their family of origin or their culture like, you know, ethnic culture or the church culture they were in before. And um, so, but we have, there are some churches that have, real. in some situations have so many big, I mean, the elephants are so big it's like they're running the meeting. And, and then you have lots of little elephants under the table that are growing into mid-sized and big elephants. And I, when I got into this in 1996 and became self-aware of my own stuff in my own life, and then I looked around at the church that I had planted, so I couldn't blame anybody else before I got there. And there was like, there was a herd of elephants. I mean, it was like, and my wife said to me, uh, you know, we first kind of, had, you know, I, I don't know where you are on your journey with this whole emotionally healthy discipleship and leadership, but as you go into it personally, it is like a second conversion. And once you cross into it, you can never go back. You just can't, because you can't pretend anymore. You can't lie anymore. You can't play a game that you know is ludicrous anymore. So my wife and I went for three to four months sabbatical. and We first kind of had our first encounter to kind of get our own life together personally and our marriage. Then we came back to the New Life Fellowship Church. I understand the church at this point is nine years old. We're about, you know, I don't know, four or five hundred people probably. And she says to me, I don't think you have what it takes to deal with the elephants in the room. And we didn't have the term elephants, but there's so much stuff here, basically craziness. She goes, what it would take for you to begin to deal with this? She goes, "I, I don't think you'll do it. I think we should just resign and get out. And uh, she says, I don't think you'll be able to do it and sustain our marriage in a healthy way. Because at that point, we're leading out of our marriage. And I said, well, I said, give me six months, honey. Just give me six months. And I'll never forget, we walked up the stairs of the church. And it was like we we had changed. But the church had not changed. We'd been gone for three to four months. So they're still doing life the way they do it. And the biggest commitment I made, and she made it as well, is that, we were no longer going to lie. Now that may sound like, oh, come on. No. Like, we weren't going to lie anymore. If someone said, you know, asked for feedback, like, we were going to be honest. Like, no, I I experience you as defensive and unteachable. (laughs) Like, I was going to be honest. Like, no, I I didn't really get, I, I didn't really enjoy that very much. I didn't get much out. Like, in other words, I wasn't, oh, I was going to give people honest job, you know, we call feedback, and it was petrifying, because I, I had, you know, we had a whole prophetic fellowship. We had more prophetic craziness going on, and it's very confusing. Is this Jesus? Is this them? Is this our unresolved stuff? And trying to sort all that out, and, uh, you know, I had people fasting 40 days at a time. One guy fasting 40 days at, um, uh, at three times a year for 40 days. Okay, come on, think about that. Okay, he's sitting over here in the left, to the left. And while I'm preaching, do you think he's listening to me? He's got a direct line right to Jesus, right, right to the throne. So when I'm preaching, he's taking his own notes for prophetic words for everybody else in the room. And meanwhile, I knew his wife was unhappy, very lonely, because he was so in the heavenlies. He was useless as a husband. And so I, I, I decided I'm not going to... A lie would be making believe this is okay. So I realized I had to take him out to lunch and have a conversation with him. That was not lying anymore. Like, that's an elephant in the room. I mean, and I did. And I took him out for lunch, and I nicely said to him, I said, listen, uh," and he, he, you know, God had told him he was a prophet, and he was carrying the mantle of repentance for the country, uh, and he had to carry this huge weight for Jesus, all that stuff. And I said, listen, I said, I said, I know you're carrying the mantle of repentance. I got it. And I said, but I have a word for you. And I said, you need to repent. I said, you're proud. You're unteachable. And I experienced you as arrogant and your wife is lonely. And so you're out of leadership until you get your marriage in order and I want you giving a word to anybody in this church anymore until you come out of this process with Jesus. And of course the Holy Spirit led him to another church, you know, the Lord told him sure he did. I'm not going to make a judgment, but that was an elephant in the room because what happens, that creates a culture of super spirituality. We almost had a two tiered spirituality. We had the prophetic anointed folks here and the intercessors who had the inner lying to jesus and the rest of us who i fast day was killing me you follow me and so you know that whole thing of i I don't believe in a two-tier spirituality i hope you don't either we all stand before god in the righteousness of jesus alone and anything that produces a two-tier is a problem it's a gospel problem but who's going to enforce it someone's got to say something and i wasn't because i don't like conflict so there's a whole culture it's just it's not healthy so slowly over time, began to just go after one elephant into an, into another, and so it was him or people showing up late to meetings and not saying anything. Um, you know, I, I had a very in early days, and I told the story first time, I first uh, workshop, is, and I one of my deep regrets. I did a, I did a podcast recently on my greatest regrets, and one had to do with this, um, you know, not being able to confront some elephants. I had a very gifted young woman. I really believe in women pastors and leaders, and we need women functioning and. Every apostolic position. Anyway, so here she was. And, and, uh, but she grew up as a missionary kid. So she was shipped off at like four years old to one of these schools. And her parents were in Indonesia. So she was, you know, she, she just, that's a tough childhood, okay? For when, so she had some emotional just tenderness in that area. But we were so, in, everything was God. I, I didn't know what to do except we cast it out, prayed for it. You name it, we did it. Brought people in to pray for her over the years, but didn't know what to do with it, really. And, and so I, went, I was in her car once, and we were going somewhere, and she said, get something out of the glove compartment. I opened the glove compartment in her car, and there's 50 to 75 tickets. Tickets, traffic tickets, parking tickets, speeding tickets, all kinds of tickets. And I say, what is this? I said, what happened? She said, oh, it's New York, Pete. I said, all right. And I closed the glove compartment, but I didn't know... I, I I didn't like have any sense. I didn't know what to do with it, so we just glossed it over. Because she was really good. I mean, she was a gifted preacher, healer. She was she was amazing, prophetic. She had leadership. She's like she had the whole package. But I didn't know what to do with the elephant. I didn't even, I didn't even know who to go to to help with the elephant. Like I think she would have been open at that point. But because I was not into what we call emotionally healthy leadership at that point. I just sent her to another intercessory kind of prophetic ministry and. It never really got deeply dug out, and she ended up leaving the ministry completely. You know, and I consider it one of the great failures of my life. Uh, but, I, and, I, and I made a commitment in 96, that, at this point forward, that elephants, in an in appropriate, prudent, prayerful way, will be addressed. And uh, it just takes courage to do that on your team. But if you love your team, you'll do it, because these are discipleship moments. And uh, I, I just remember one, one of our staff, she, she was quite gifted, and uh, another staff, and, and but she was, she had a, a a zing to her, like, she was on staff, but she could be judgmental at times. And you ever have someone report to you, but you feel like you're being judged by them, like you're always on trial? Like, you just, and like, you're, and, and they're right, like, 90% of the time, which makes it worse. And so you're like, but you realize you're in their presence, and you're just squirming, kind of, but yet you're the leader, and they're not, and they work for you, and and so i finally came to the place i realized there's something going on here and so i just finally one day i went to her and i said you know can we sit down we'll call her susan in case it's not being taped but we'll call her susan anyway um... i just want to share with you how i experience you and to me it was a discipleship moment because i've cared for her realizing that probably because she was so strong and gifted probably very few people in her life had ever done that for her, like giving her honest feedback about what it would be like to be with her. And I said, you know, I want you, I experience you as uh, judgmental and harsh. And I just gave her that kind of feedback. She asked me a couple questions and I gave her some examples. And I uh, mean, she really appreciated it. But I realized at that point, I said, oh, that's why my growth and development is so important to the culture because who's going to be mature enough to give her honest feedback? Did it like who, and I did it out of love for her, honestly. It was a, I wasn't mad at her. It wasn't, wasn't about me. It was about... Because obviously, if I'm feeling it, it's, that's something... And I wasn't saying, you are this. Because I don't know if she... I can't... All I know is, I experience you as this. That I can say with authority. I experience you as judgmental and harsh. And of course... She knew right away, I wasn't the first person to tell that to her. Her husband had been saying it for years. <laughs> Seriously. It was a good moment. But then secondly, time and energy are invested in a team's personal development. So I'm actually like, when we go on a staff retreat or we're doing staff meetings, it's not just about the agenda to get things done. I'm actually thinking about how can I grow these folks? Uh, whether it's, I don't care if it's watching a tape of some speaker, or doing a Myers-Briggs or Enneagram or doing a scripture study together, uh, going to a conference, a workshop. I mean, there's so much you can do, but it's actually you as a leader. Whatever team you're leading, you may not be a senior pastor, but dressing you to think through, what can I do for my team's development? What could we do that's, okay, but it's, but it's not, it's not, but Pete, it's not getting me to the bottom line. You know, like multiplying small groups or mul- growing the church in numbers and you're going deep as well as wide. It's not either or, it's both and, but if we're gonna do an emo- what we call emotional culture, this takes time and energy. So when you go on a staff retreat for a day, you may spend half the day on development. So it means less time for strategy, less time for day, de- you gotta do that in other places, but this is so important, time is given to it. And um, I, I think actually, when I someday, if I just think it's, I, cause we did develop like about 15 excellent like. 10 to 15, like, excellent things you could do with a staff team um, over, like, a, a two- to three-hour period. And they're just helpful. We gathered over the years and developed some of our own. And, and um, just, just this good stuff out there. I think an example of that is in the book, Emotionally the Leader. I actually used a poem and, uh, about being and doing. And it was a different way to come at the material and basically then asking, how are you doing with your two circles of being and doing? Remember that circles I put up yesterday about doing and being, and say, how are you doing right now in your present life with that in your leadership? So in other words, you're helping them with their inner life, out of which they lead, and you're constantly feeding that because you're trying to keep your your volunteers or grounded in Jesus because they're all and they're around the same whirlwind that you are, in, in just the world. And I say, new skills plus new language plus intentional follow-up equal transformed community. That, that that is a you know that's a that's a worthy of like memorizing because. You see, I I meet a lot of leaders that don't... This is a lot of work. Like, the intentional follow-up is hard. It's really hard. So, if... if, um, I was lead pastor for 26 years at New my Fellowship Church. And then uh, six years ago, uh, five and a half years ago, uh, Rich took over. Rich is 30... He was 34 at the time. He just turned 40. So... um, Rich is a seven on the Enneagram. If you know Enneagram, he's like, I mean, everything's positive and good. You know? He's like a born, fun guy to be around. But he, he, he's not really into negative and conflict. He wasn't at all initially. So I'm, I'd say to you know, Rich, you see that guy, that, that new staff over there in the corner? He's sitting in staff meeting, and he's got his arms crossed. And when people are talking, he's looking down. He's basically somewhere else. And... I said, this is an opportunity, Rich, you know, to talk to him. See, that's where intentional follow-up comes along. And uh, we ended up sitting down with him. And, and, and you know what it turned out? He came from a family where uh, he rarely saw his father. But when his father would let him go with him on trips to, like, go somewhere, but he would tell him, you sit here and you shut up and don't open your mouth. Okay, we're going a two-hour drive, but don't open your mouth. And he tells us this story. He goes, so basically, when I'm in a meeting, I just kind of like shut. And he's very he's, a, hes He preaches. He leads. But for some reason, in a meeting, he would just shut down, go inward, and kind of like not be there. And he wouldn't say a word. It all went back to the story. We were like, you're kidding Rich would never have found it out if he didn't, like, I want to talk to you about that because basically in a meeting, you're creating a sense of the meeting of like, not not a lot of warmth coming out of you, <laughs> interest and in self-absorption, and yet you're a leader, I mean, you're, you're quite a leader up front, but you become a different person, the, and he goes, well, I'm young, and all these leaders are older, and it kind of reminds me of this, and we were like in shock, but it was a chance to go after it, so um, so an example would be, so we teach certain skills. And E.H. discipleship, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, is about another language, another culture that you bring into the church, and you then reinforce it. See, if leaders don't live it, it doesn't matter what you teach because it's not going to stick. And that's why it always goes back to leadership. And um, uh, if you want to know the culture of your church, it doesn't matter the size of your church. It could be thousands, it could be hundred. Just give the inner core of that church, 20, 30 people. If it's a small church, 10, 15 people, including yourself. Find out how they're living. That is the culture of your church. And and natural church development out of Germany is like, these are professional statisticians, and they study churches and the health of churches. And they do this big statistical thing. And Their philosophy, and they've done tens of thousands of churches globally, is give me your core 30 people in a church. This is a big church. And I will tell you the culture of your whole church because it's it's emanating out from that core. So if they don't do conflict, your church doesn't either. If they don't spend time with Jesus, your church is not probably spending, people are probably not spending, I mean, you're going to get the taste of the culture in those. A lot of backbiting and gossip, that's what's going on. A lot of mission, they're missional, but you're going to get it from them. So this is an example of, of a tool. It's called a community temperature reading. It's a very simple tool. It's part of the course. What you'll notice in that is, is you, it's a basic, it, people come into a church and they relate to other people out of their family of origin. But that, that's all they know. Whatever they were, you were born and raised with, if your family didn't do conflict well, unless you get discipled in it, you probably don't either. If it was silent treatment, avoidance, yelling and screaming, hitting, sarcasm, passive aggressive behavior, whatever it was, you do some combination or reaction against that. But... When you're under high stress, either with a spouse or a very intense meeting or maybe it's someone in authority, and you're in a conflict situation, unless you've done some inner work of discipleship, you will, 99% of the cases, you will go right back to the system you grew up in. And you'll get triggered, you'll get reactive, and so will everybody else in your church. So relational discipleship is half of EH discipleship. we, We disciple people in... Learning to bond, learning to connect, learn to love. It was core to Jesus' ministry. was not just creating Pharisees who loved God, who tithed and fasted and prayed, but people who actually loved people. Remember the commandment? They asked for one greatest commandment, he gave them two. Because you can't separate the two. And just just a quick side note. Do you know that passage in uh, Matthew 5 when Jesus says, if you, if you go to the altar and find out your brother has something against you, leave the gift at the altar and go and get reconciled to your brother and then come back. Well, if you read you know, the background, what rabbis taught at that time was if you go to the altar and you got, your brother's got something against you is finish your gift of worship at the altar and then go reconcile to your brother. Jesus says, no, leave the altar, get reconciled, and come back. Because he wanted to make very clear, you cannot separate this and this. It was was a revolution to teach that. He was touching lepers. Gotta remember, he was tax collectors and sinners and he's he's reinterpreting. They're concerned about not getting unclean, right? The Levitical law. And Jesus says, go and learn what Hosea wrote. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus basically says, "You're, you're, you're reading scripture wrong. You're missing the heart of scripture. And he put a new priority on people. So anyway, teaching people relations. You know a person's level of maturity by how approachable and soft and humble and broken they are relationally. The most mature people in the church are the greatest lovers of people. The problem is that's, how, that's not how we, that's 1 Corinthians 13. That's a Paul said. I mean, we, we don't measure it by gifts and anointing, right? We measure it by... This thing called love, approachability, and softness. You know, when I got into this, I've been so long in, like, my Pentecostal tradition. I was, I was so long into it, I somehow lost it. I really was about anointing, gifting, make it happen. Like, okay, you're a great lover of people, but you know what? I really can't use you because you're, really, you're not going to bring in more people. So, like, you're not as mature as this guy over here. He may have some blind spots, but, man, he does evangelism, <laughs> you know? And, and so... Anyway, we teach things like, how do you make a complaint? And so we would teach people like, no, when you make a complaint, because you're going to do complaining like your family of origin did it. So we said, no, in the new family of Jesus, we do it differently. So we, we teach them a little structure. I notice and I prefer. And it may sound very little simple, but it's gigantic. If you've been making complaining in a bad way your whole life, because that's how your family did it, and you come into the church, you're going to do it the way your family did it. That's stupid. I don't agree. No, if you do it that way, I'm leaving. I mean, like, versus, you know, I noticed that, you know, when I gave an example of my, the worship went long today, and I'd prefer if it would stay on time, right? I noticed the meeting started 10 minutes late, and I'd prefer if we could start on time. Okay. Why is this meeting always starting 10 minutes late? And, and so we're creating culture. No, we don't talk like that in the new family of Jesus. We're the new family of Jesus. Now, the question is, what's the culture of the new family of Jesus? Most of our churches, you know what the culture is relationally? Nothing. Because we don't teach it. It's just kind of like, love, love. Just love everybody. You know, and like, and, and then we pray and we preach and nothing changes. Because this is a discipleship issue. You're not going to change a family of origin, a habit. That's, their culture is in their, it's in them. Do you understand? Like, it's going to, you got to, think of Jesus and the 12. Think of what they, think of like, John and James wanting to call down fire on Samaritans, and James and John, who's the greatest, and Peter. I mean, these guys were really bad relationally. I mean, they, Jesus had to mold them three years full time, like, trying to get these guys in shape. It's no different for us. So that's why half the, the, the discipleship course is teaching people. We developed over 21-and-a-half-year period eight skills. It climaxes in clean fighting, not dirty fighting. So we teach people to speak in the eye. So when someone says, all those Christians are hypocrites, we say, now, how would you say that in the eye? I struggle with being a hypocrite. You with me? We don't talk about you. We're not judgmental people. All those. I mean, all, every Christian in the world's a hypocrite? Is that true? Every Christian? Well, what does that say about your heart? You think every Christian's a hypocrite. So you're, you're, these are all culture moments. So anyway these skills, but it's not just something you introduce to your church. The, the leadership has to live it, own it. Because even if you get exposed to it once, they're going to still go back to the way their families did it. And so now you've got to teach them well. So we, our church has got, you know, we've got, you know, we got a, a couple of hundred folks from what, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Chinese. We have an Indonesian fellowship and Filipino fellowship. We've got, we've got 73 countries. We've got a lot of complexities of cultures. Certain cultures, I mean, between honor culture and shame culture and saving face, I mean, they just don't do conflict. So so when, you know, well, how do you have a church where people don't want to do conflict? And uh, then they tell you, that's my culture. Pastor Pete, it's my culture. You know, in Indonesia, we just submit to, I just submit to my husband as unto the Lord. And, you know, I just, I don't want to disagree with him. Meanwhile, she's stabbing him in the back, you know, with her behavior. But she, but she's, it's shielded in culture. So part of what we're doing is we're disrupting culture. Every culture, there's there's no, when you bring new family of Jesus in, you're disrupting every culture. African-American, Jewish, Arab, Egyptian, I mean, you name it. African, every country in Latin America, white American. And so then finally, the quality of people's marriage and their singleness is foundational. We're actually concerned about that. We're asking about their marriage because the organism of your marriage, uh, if you're married, if you're a leader, is going to become the organism of the, Paul understood that, the organism of the, what you're leading. That's why I made it one of the requirements of an elder. If you can't manage your own organism well, how are you going to build a healthy organism here? And so um, if you read The Emotionally Healthy Leader, we have a, quite a theology of marriage that you lead out of your marriage if you're married or, you're, or a healthy singleness. Uh, and so we're asking about how's it going. In fact, we're asking, we ask spouses, how's it going? Because you won't get the truth sometimes from the person on your staff or the leader. But you want to know about your single leaders as well. You know, how are you dealing? Know, how's your sexuality? Do you have a community of people that you can be safe with here? And It's not easy to be single for Jesus and be a leader. It's really challenging. They need their own support. But it's foundational. And, and so in a, emotionally, the culture, if... See, I don't mind that you're struggling in your marriage. I, that's fine. Or struggling with your single is, The question is, are you getting help to work on it? That's the the issue. And um, we give staff a budget to do therapy for their marriages and singleness. Like, we want to resource you. We want you to have a marriage and a singleness that's a sign and a wonder for Christ. The highest priority of your life is Jesus. After that, it is your marriage or singleness. And after that, it is the church. But you're living out a healthy marriage that overflows of the love of Jesus to the world or a singleness, a healthy singleness out of which you overflow to the world. But it comes out of your inner life, and so we are concerned about it, and uh, it's foundational. And so if your marriage isn't going well or your spouse is finding this a miserable experience to be on a staff, uh, we won't have you on our staff. I mean, even because, because we, we, want, we want to contribute to the flourishing of your life, not suck it away. Most ministries suck the life out of marriages. Are you aware of that? They do, unintentionally. And so part of the responsibility of a healthy culture is you're concerned about that. So one of the reasons we did not do um, uh, an evening service on Sundays or or Saturday night service was really the marriages and families. In our case, the limits of my marriage and my own personal life, to walk with Jesus was a limit for our church. In other words, I, I couldn't, I, I, have, I know some guys who have churches of like, you know, thousands, 10,000 people. I mean, I'm like, I, that requires a certain level of gifting as well as inner life. But I knew my marriage, the nature of my wife, Jerry, for us to have a marriage that flourished, um, pastoring is hard. And uh, like to do multi-site, like I just knew, like, like I'm not that good. You know, not, I, I end to have a great marriage and a great walk with Jesus. And so, you know, our church was limited. I mean, we grew to about whatever 12, 1300 1, people before I stepped down. And I said, well, the person that follows me, they can boom it, you know, and go. But I just knew for myself, I could do depth. We can get people away, but I, I, the the quality of my marriage and the, and the senior staff was very important. And so that was a limit to our church. And I people come to me really upset. You should, be, you got to be doing this. And I said, well, I'm limited. I'm not busy, I'm just limited. I, it, people say you're busy. They say, no, I'm not busy, I'm limited. Because don't let them define the culture of busyness. I'm just limited. I have limits. I've got God, I'm sleeping, I've just got all these limits around me, and i, mean, I got to make certain choices, and that's why I'm not able to go to your grandmother's birthday party, you know, and I love your grandma. I'm sure she's a wonderful person. <laughs> so, but the Emotionally Healthy Leader uh, So to, is a culture, and uh, many of you have read it, and you saw this yesterday in, in the uh, service, But this skyscraper thing is, is, is really a, a, a culture, a leadership. Face your shadow, lead out of your marriage or singleness, slow down for love and union, practice Sabbath the light. And those things, um, these four inner life issues, um, inform our outer lives. That's kind of the structure of the entire book. But the point of the, is this uh, when it comes to culture. So, for example, if you're not Sabbathing, now Sabbath is just a spiritual practice, right, like Bible study or prayer. It doesn't save you. Jesus saves you, right? If you're not Sabbathing, that means you don't have a good rhythm in your life. And, and, and God structured that to, to, to cre- teach us about creatureliness, rhythms, our neediness. We need to rest and delight and that our whole life wouldn't become work. That's idolatry. Our, whole, our life is Jesus, and we're headed for an eternal Sabbath rest. And so, anyway, Sabbath is a pretty important practice. So if you're on our team at New Life Fellowship Church, we actually commit to a rule of life of how we function. And if you're not Sabbathing as a pastor or as administrative leader, you're not going to work here because we're modeling something to the church of a slow down spirituality. And part of the way we do that is that. Um, and we slow down. So this is what we want to live and uh, out of which comes our own how we function as a church. But most importantly, we're trying to build a culture here. So... Um, what you do matters. Who you are matters more. The state you're in is the state you give to others. So they're, 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 those are really just always monitor. What state am I in right now? You know, if you're really stressed, you know, go home. Go up. Go take a nap. Like, what do you need? W- what do you need to be calm and peaceful? And so in the morning, you know, I, I spend my time with God in the morning. I, You know, I, I'll do silence for 20, uh, whatever, 20 minutes at least, whatever I need. But I want to go out into the world. With, in, in peace, in joy, in, in Jesus. And whatever I need in silence to get there is what I need. So that when I go out in there, I'm actually, like, in a good place. So sometimes you're, uh, you're saying, oh, I'm, I'm so anxious. i got so much to do. I, I know that that's God speaking to you, that you're doing too much. Something's got to shift here because it's your person that is the biggest factor of the culture of the team you're leading anyway. So, now, going on your sheet here, six. What does a church culture look like? Okay, beyond individuals. So I'm going to give you six marks of a church culture. In fact, you can. It's a. It's a little ebook you can get for free. In fact, when you, I think you're going to get it, right, Paul? They get it for free. Outside, you can get it too, and you sign up at Zondervan, the mailing list. But it's a 15-20 page ebook, and uh, it kind of explains. It got some questions for your team to think about. Uh, now, again, the goal is, what's a church culture look like that deeply changes lives? Now, that's the question. I, and we're talking here about deeply changing people's lives, not simply building a crowd. If you want to build a crowd, you're in the wrong seminar. This is about building a church where people are deeply changed by Jesus. That's a mess and slow. So here's the sixth quality the mark. One, it's a slow-down spirituality. People have a sense the most important thing in life is to be with Jesus, out of which I live my life. My doing comes out of a healthy being with him. That's a pretty big commitment. So we're not running around like nuts. We're, we're very aware of that. And, and so we're not over-programming or under-programming. Or we're, just, we're just aware of that reality. Number two is there's integrity in leadership. We live what we preach. Appropriately we're not perfectionistic because we're you know, we're all broken and on journey, but like we're not pretending to be something we're not our role and our souls are connected, you know, you know, it's easy to get into church work where our role of we're teaching all these incredible things about God I mean like really but then our ability to live those things is over is getting the gap is getting wider. Like we got this, especially if you're gifted and you're young and like you've got this huge ministry going on, your role is this. People are seeing you as this, but your soul is way back here. And so what happens, you're going through ministry or or leadership and the gap of your role, what you're presenting to the world, and actually the inner reality of your soul, that gap is actually getting wider. Now, the only one who did it perfectly was Jesus. So let's. So we all have a little gap, but I want that gap to be lessening, diminishing, not growing. So when I talk about integrity and leadership, that means that, like, we as a a people that we're living in vulnerability and brokenness and authenticity and honesty. And so I can talk about that. I'm not pretending anything. I'm trying to be as honest as possible with people. And thirdly, we do beneath-the-surface discipleship which is, we're, we're, we're going into your family of origin. You're learning about limits and grief. We're, we're not just doing, like, can you evangelize? Do you, are you giving? Are you studying the Bible? Are you memorizing scripture? Are you going on mission trips? Uh, that's all external, above the surface. We're actually concerned about beneath the surface. Uh, fourthly, it, uh, a fourth mark of a church calls a deeply changed lives. You have to have a healthy community that reinforces the values and the culture so that if someone's doing dirty fighting in a small group, there's enough of a culture for someone with maturity to call that person out. That's a healthy culture. And it's happening not just from the leadership, it's actually the body. So the, it's not just a regular community. We, we, we meet together and we're all friends. There's actually an article that came out recently by Barna about the American church is good at relationships but not good at discipleship. Like we're very much concerned about connecting people. And making relationships but it doesn't mean we're doing discipleship so my brother goes to a mega church in Michigan he 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 has a group uh, a married group and so I said to him a few years ago I said Joe you know bring bring this material to your group I'm your brother <laughs> you know and so and they meet every two weeks there's like six couples they have dinner they have fellowship you know they have one or two questions about the sermon they talk about it and they a meeting for years. And so he brings his study on Saul and David and whatever, session one, the problem of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. And the group just said, hey, Joe, 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 hold on a second. What are you doing? We are not. We did not sign up for this. Hey, we have a great group. We have fellowship. We pray for each other. We talk about the sermon, a couple questions. Like, Leave it alone. This is not for us. Your brother, I'm sure, is a nice guy. (laughs) This is not for us. And then I went to, you know, I was there the following summer, you know, visiting him and went to church. And, uh, you know, pastor had read one of my books. My brother introduces me, and the pastor said, we're going to reach 10% of the city for Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, but my brother's a mess, and he's in your church. (laughs) And No, seriously, it's like I'm like my brother's discipleship is so thin that it's just so tragic to me he's been a christian for 30 years but the level of his discipleship is just it's really immature and uh, god for you know i talked about it you know (laughs) he's my older brother mark passionate marriages and singleness that there's actually like like if you're married you're gonna get discipled on how to be married like that's an issue It's, it's not we're not doing your family and we're doing jesus and then singleness as well. And every person, Mark, is in full-time ministry. That we don't have like this two-tier thing, like we got pastors and everybody else. Like, no, you got saved, you're in full-time ministry. Till the day you die, you're in full-time ministry. Doctors, plumbers, doesn't matter. Mom's at home, dad's at home. Everybody's in full-time ministry for Jesus. Paid or unpaid, it doesn't matter. You're retired from your job, great. Now, what, what's God calling you to do? So you don't need money? You got money? Fantastic. Now you can work for free, you know, and you just, but you're still in full-time ministry for Christ for your whole life. It's a whole different view of retirement as well. Um, we don't believe in retirement. We believe, we believe that we are in, we're full-time ministry for Jesus Christ, that period. That's our lives. And so I'm not, I'm not the lead pastor. My identity is not in being a lead pastor. I'm just a, I'm a pastor on the staff of New Life Fellowship, and I do emotional of discipleship for the world. I preach a couple times a year and mentor a few young pastors and, but I could leave being lead pastor at New Life Fellowship because it's not my identity; it's Jesus. And someday I won't be a pastor at all. I'll be whatever, and but I'll still be in full-time ministry doing something else for Jesus. But I'm 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 His. So it's very important. So, um, so what we're talking about here is creating a oh, I'm sorry, creating a, a, culture, where. Um, the our goal is you know is is multiplying by making disciples. I I love the four square. I, you have so many incredible strengths at Foursquare, really, and, and one of which is passion for mission and, and unselfishness and a giving spirit to bless the world. And, and that is the heart of God, isn't it? Uh, the question is, how are we going to get there? And and, and I, I think what I'm bringing to the table, and the reason you're, he's not president, past president. Glenn's still president. The reason Glenn brought me here was because he believes in this. I mean, he believes in this. And uh so what Emotion Discipleship, the course, which I'm going to talk about right now, is it's an introduction of content to a culture that gets beneath the surface. In other words, it's, this is not like a, a program. It's, it's not a panacea. It's just a, it's a gift as you do the bigger whole of intentional discipleship, community, life on life, small groups, serving. All that stuff's important. This is the goal, but what we're offering here is something here of Deep change, deeply changing lives. So, you know, we've been 23 and a half years on this thing. A long time uh, developing this. This is the way churches do today. This is how churches operate. Just get to church, get you connected in a group, serving, giving, listen to sermons on Sundays, and we're going to make an impact. But that is the impact. It's small. And we have mega churches in almost every country, almost every city in the country, and the, and the culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Because okay? it's not about numbers of people in pews, but the quality of those people. And those 12 did a heck of a lot with the Roman Empire, all right? right. And they weren't much to, to sniff at. But we're talking here about getting into your church and getting deeply changed. That's deep, okay, for the sake of that kind of impact. So the course is a one way to get at this. And we're, not, we're not the only thing in town, obviously, but it's one approach, and it's a, it's a serious one. It's a countercultural one, and uh, it's a two-part course. Centralized This is not a small group thing. Centralized, high-quality course. That's why it's not, I used to be in small groups years ago, pulled it out because small groups are not meant for serious, intensive discipleship. They're kind of like, you know, they have lots of other purposes. And I, I believe in small groups, but you'll see just people at tables, every table's got a trained leader at it. Led by a person up upfront, uh, there's two parts an eight weeks and eight weeks. And uh, so it's a course. The Discipleship Spirituality Course, many of you have read this emotionally Spirituality book, but it's not just a book, it's a workbook, it's a daily office book, uh, and then it's a Relationships, it's the second part, so it's part one and part two. And uh, so here's the Spirituality Course, part one, it looks like this. And I understand, this is a course, which means it's serious, you're doing homework, you're not missing, it takes two hours or two and a half hours, it's, it's a big Wednesday night, I mean, it's a big commitment. If you come to our church, and lots of other churches, we make it clear that you're going to be a member, great. Take the spirituality course and the relationships course. Take this, we call the emotionally held discipleship course, because this is the DNA of our culture. And you understand, this is how we function as the new family of Jesus. And we want you to understand that this is what's going to get reinforced in the entire culture. This is how we live. So when you start doing something that's whatever, pretending or hucking and jiving or whatever it might be, you know, we're going to call you out on it. Uh, and so it starts with the problem of, of, it's an overview. It starts with the problem of Saul, who has, does not have a deep walk with God, nor is he self-aware. He's stubborn, he's jealous, but he's anointed, and he doesn't even see it. Then it goes into David, know yourself that you may know God, that knowing yourself and knowing God are inseparable. David had that. And then go back to go forward. You've got to go back to go forward. How your past has impacted your present from becoming all that God's called you to be. And Joseph is the great example of that. Then it looks at journey through the wall. that introduces people to valleys and, and walls and, and uh, the pit that every believer will go through walls. No exceptions. And it looks at Abraham and the wall of Isaac. Abraham had multiple walls. And you're positioning people to understand that this walk with Jesus, uh, God's going to lead you to some difficult places to transform you deeply. And he's going to change your image of who God is. But this is not, Jesus is not for your spiritual sweet tooth. You're not just following your feelings for Jesus. You're following Jesus. If you just follow your feelings, you're going to quit when difficult times come. And so you're preparing people theologically for, like, the long journey of following Christ uh, and, uh, and then enlarge your soul through grief and loss. Like the Bible's got a lot to say about grief and loss. I mean, two-thirds of the Psalms, a whole book called Lamentations, Jesus called Man of Sorrows. I mean, I mean, I wrote a 25-page paper in seminary on one of the laments of David, but the professor never made the connection that we should feel how do we process our own sadnesses and losses. And how do you wait on the Lord with it? And how do you let something new be birthed out of it? What do we do in our culture? We deny it. We suppress it. We medicate with drugs and alcohol. But we don't have a theology. And especially in the Western church, we don't have any theology for loss and and grief. And and, uh, so here I was, a pastor, a Christian, 17 years. I I didn't do feelings. I just did happiness and joy for Jesus and anger. Men could do anger in my family. But do I do sadness? Ugh. Fear? fear not. You know, I was, you know, I was just, I just didn't do those things. It was too soft and vulnerable. And, but yet, I, I, t- I found there's a whole Bible out there on this stuff. And, and then discovering rhythms at a daily office and Sabbath is rhythms and then grow into an emotionally mature adult and, and then go to the next step, develop a rule of life. It's actually some of the riches of monasticism in this thing. It's, this is not just throw a few spiritual disciplines in your life. It's about Change your whole life for Jesus. And then the second course is all about these skills of relationships. Both are built on a daily office book, a day-by-day book. And, and um, what's that? Okay, all right, let me move on here. So so here's the four essentials, and I'll close with the... Uh, uh, so my invitation to you is that you actually consider getting trained and bringing this EH discipleship course into your culture very slowly. First you live it a little bit... Not perf- perfect, but you're in it, and then you bring it as a pilot slowly to a group, and then consider bringing it to the wider culture. You do not bring this in like a big bubble boom This is not like purpose-driven life. This isn't like a plug-and-play thing. You've got to actually get trained, get into it yourself, begin living it yourself. But here's the four es- you know, essentials. It's about slowing down to be with Jesus. That's obviously number one. And so central to the course, and someone was here the first session, they said, the biggest thing in the course is what's called the daily office, or just people twice a day meet with Jesus. And in those meeting with Jesus, they're silent for two minutes at each devotional. They begin with two minutes of silence and end with two minutes of silence. That is the most difficult part of the course. So you're bringing silence to the whole church. I mean, that's a big thing. They think you're New Agey. They think you're Buddhist. They think you're crazy. Okay? Because we don't... But it's biblical. And uh, it's transforming. Then it's go back to go forward. You're You're actually, you know, getting into people, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. That's a big saying for us, you know. And so the discipleship is driving grandpa out of your bones so Jesus can live there. And so this is a genogram. So everyone, imagine everyone in your church doing, it's, it's a way of looking at your family of origin. And in the course, part one and two, you're, you begin to look at how did my family impact who I am today? And it's heavy. So I, for example, I have abuse in my family of origin, severe abuse um, physically and emotionally that I had completely blocked out. Of course, when I got saved at 19, I was just running away from my family. I I didn't want I'm done. And so I was 17 years a Christian, unaware of how much that my family was impacting my leadership, completely unaware. Most of our people are asleep on where they are. And uh, so imagine everyone in your church doing one of these. Believe me, it breaks everybody. Everyone's broken. And um, it's been one of the keys for us for racial reconciliation as well. You learn skills of love like Jesus, uh, which you talked about. A person cannot become their best self or a mature Christ follower without emotional connection with others. We've got people who are, quote, mature in Jesus who cannot emotionally connect. Friends, that is not maturity. Uh, that is a that is a, a split that's not healthy and so we want to help people move into relationships And again there's the course okay so there they are uh, that's kind of the core essentials that come through the two things of the courses so again here's secular rhythm sacred rhythm let me get out of here let me okay that kit is the one thing I'm gonna encourage you to pick up out of here uh, and and um, uh, it's kind of it's just for leaders to get the what is it, what is this course what are the, all the elements of it and then you come to a training um, I don't. I don't want to. I want to skip this. Uh, uh, you, we want to invite you to a three to three and a half hour training um, in that, where because you just can't bring this. How do you do this? How do you launch this course? Um, and so we have live stream events. And Paul, why don't you come up here for a second? And um, our next one live stream is June 27th. And uh, let me let me get to you, Paul. Here's Paul. Paul is a just a you know, Paul uh, is a pastor. four-square pastor for many years, and he runs the center. For spiritual formation, in spiritual renewal. spiritual renewal in Virginia, but he works for us part time, coaching pastors. He actually directs the E.H. discipleship coaches that help you bring the course to your church. But he's he's one of your people, all right, a Foursquare. So,
0: so on top of that, we uh, not only have the June twenty seventh live stream coming up, but we're actually doing a live level one, how to master the launch of the E.H.D. course in your church training tomorrow from uh, 1.30 to 4.45 p.m. First time that Foursquare has ever offered a post-connection training opportunity. And uh, you can still register for that. All you need to do if you're interested and available in doing that training is head to the registration desk, which is all the way to the right of the Delta Ballroom. You have to walk all the way around and go to the back. You'll see the registration desk, and you just tell the folks there, I need to add the EHD training tomorrow onto my registration. It's going to include lunch, so you don't even have to stop for lunch somewhere. You just uh, come to the the training for it. We're going to have a whole bunch of uh, Foursquare pastors who are already integrating EHD into their church cultures uh, that are going to be there and available and hosting tables to be able to guide you through the training and then answer your questions as well. So Paul is a,
1: a gold mine. I mean, he's tremendous. So you, there's his email address so you can contact him. Uh, but when you, uh, you you want you want to get to one of those live stream trainings, so let's take a couple Q&A. Uh, I'm going to give you two or three uh, FAQs. Can we, Paul? Is that mic, Is that microphone working? Okay. Why why don't you, okay, you can start one right here. And then I I got two or three that came out last time that I definitely FAQs around culture. Yes, sir. So
0: the Ten Commandments, um, I find that interesting but also challenging. And so I would like to ask you, what do you do with the Ten Commandments if you actually were a part of three different families?
1: Well, no, that's good. You have to identify from those three experiences, what did you pick up? Because one probably influenced you on certain areas and the other ones. The question is, what's living in your body now?
0: Some of those were conflicting. So um, some taught good things, some didn't.
1: Yeah, yeah, so that's part of your own, you're married, your spouse is there, Mm -hmm. she'll probably help you, I'm sure she knows. (laughs) She lives with you and um, yeah, it's a good question. Here's two common questions that come up. One is, what do I do, does it always have to be top down to change a culture? Can it ever be bottom up? Uh, and I would say to you, it can be bottom up. It can be sideways. Sideways is very common. Uh, so don't worry about the. If you're not the lead lead pastor, obviously in a great position. Uh, but even lead pastors, it's a challenge because you got a whole system. You got to think systemically. Um, so I have seen churches get changed from the bottom up. One story is a, you know, a guy lived near me, 2,500 member church. He wanted, he he wanted to bring this to his church. And his pastor was dead against it because he said, emotionally healthy, it sounds like psychobabble. And the pastor just said, you know what, I'm not bringing psychobabble here. And uh, the pastor just, for him, it just didn't sound biblical. And so that was it. So then he asked, he goes, "Would, I, would you, could I please just do a class and just see how it goes? He goes, okay, you can do a class because he was an elder. So he trusted him. So he did a class, went well, and he got the second class. But... After about two and a half to three years, he had so much fruit out of those classes that the pastor said, would you come talk to our staff team about what's going on with this? Because there were so many lives being changed. And honestly, it was the place where lies are being changed more than anything else going on in the church. And so now it was like, you know, so it came in bottom up. It was very interesting. Um, Very common. Someone on staff will say, you always got to get permission because you're bringing in a big thing. But you're only gonna, you always call it a pilot when you start. Because you always say, you know, if the spirit of God's moving, great. If it doesn't, you don't do it. But because it it's not threatening to bring a pilot in. But this is so much new stuff. People aren't used to going to church and being, like, really challenged. Like No, they're just not. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I never heard this before. That's why you're here. You're a disciple. Like, we're going somewhere. Like, but it's, a, it's people are, like, genogram, like, skills and language and Silence, and you're just, you're jostling my whole world here. You are. So we always say, call it a pilot when you bring it in. But I would say many places bring it in sideways. Someone gets a vision for it, they bring it in, but they bring it in slow. And we say, even if you're the lead pastor, bring it in slow. Uh, Do not rush this thing. There is no rush. It is powerful. And because of that, you want to go careful because you don't want to get off mission. You want to stay on your mission and your values. Um, And this is not all of discipleship either. It's just a key piece that's missing in so much of our discipleship. So it's got to be really walked out. I I got an email this morning from one of our Spanish churches, and they're launching the course. The course is coming out in Spanish uh, fully in, uh, in January 1st. But they're launching it in New York, and he says he knows Sabbath is going to be a big issue because they associate Sabbath with legalism, okay? And so he just wants to talk about it. I gave him some readings to to look into. And uh, I I met with all the Latin American leaders yesterday of countries who were talking about the course going to Latin America. And the guy says, you quote Catholics. And, you know, we don't agree with their theology. And as you know, Latin America has got a whole history of Protestants and Catholics fighting and all that. So um, we got into a really good discussion. I said, I did that on purpose. He goes, what? I go, yeah, absolutely. It was on purpose because uh, of an understanding of church history. And there's only one church in the world, and that church is those who have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior who died and rose for them. And if you know the history of the church, for the first 1,054 years, there wasn't a Protestant, Orthodox, and Catholic church. Right now there's three main branches in the world. Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox. Orthodox Church would be like the Syrian Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church and the Iraqi, the uh, Assyrian Orthodox Church, the ones who've been killed by ISIS. And like like, you know what's ironic to me? I said I said, do you understand there's Christians in Iraq? You know that? But they're not Protestants. Like they're Orthodox. Those guys who got their head beheaded in Egypt, the co- on, on the beach in Libya by ISIS, like they were Coptic Christians. Okay? They're, they weren't. Foursquare. But you in your skinny jeans and leather jacket living in your McMansion are judging them because they have a patriarch and who dresses funny and you're making a judgment on their spirituality when they got their heads cut off rather than deny Christ. Something's wrong with the picture of the American church that's got a judgment about everybody else. And so for the first 1,054 years, it was only one church. That church split into east and west in 1054, and we're in the west. So if you were in the west, you're a Roman Catholic. If you lived in the eastern part of the world, you were, you know, orthodox, based on geography, pretty much. And then in 1517, we had the Protestant Reformation, and we've had a couple of three, four 400,000 splits since then, you know. And so, but we're not the whole church, and, and our, our genogram is that. And, and you know what I'm saying? We're, we're, we're biblical Christians, orthodox, but... But we're not the whole – and part of what this is about is, like, we're not making judgments. Of, I mean, I'm, I'm an evangelical. I'm, you know, charismatic. I'm, you know, I, I, I got my Pentecostal roots. But I'm a Christian. And I love the church in the world. And I, I care about Syria. Like, I really care about the Christians in Syria. The Syrian Orthodox have lost everything. To me, it's important. Like, I pray for them. But they're not Protestants. I don't care. I just care they're getting killed. And a pastor from Damascus flew in to see me recently because they're doing an EHD because they don't have a theology for all the war and grief that they've experienced. And he goes, we need help because we're losing people like crazy in the middle of this war zone. He goes, I'm between ISIS and a dictator. And he goes, you think I got, you know, it's, it's challenging in Homs to be a pastor in Syria right now. And so this American Christianity is really, we're kind of like, we're not doing American Christianity. We're trying to do like biblical global Christianity, Amen. and bring a shock into the church for the sake of the church that we love, and if we're going to go into mission for the next century. So, do you want one, more question? one more question, and we'll close it. Yeah. What do you want? Yes, right over there. Uh, here, pass it now. No, that's alright. She's there. <laughs>
2: um, so I work at a, a Christian high school, and um, I'm just. As you were talking, I just thought how relevant this would be to teach to the younger generation. Yep. And I'm just curious to see, A, if you think that this program, the way you have it now, yep. would work for them. And yep. if, you, if you think so, if, if there needs to be like editing to it or, yep. or, or how that might look. Well,
1: because it's young, what you're talking about, high school? Yep. Yeah. I would say I would say that it, what's really interesting for those of you older like myself, this material is most popular with people, uh, I would say, 40 and under. Generation, like, I would say the millennials and clearly X's and the Y's love it. Uh, it it's actually that's the it's, this thing has become like we're like the Beatles. I'm 62, all right. <laughs> the biggest audience are the 20s, so I, the thing exploded among young because it's relational, it's broken, it's authentic, it's cross-cultural, it's just got all the. the, the the, the, the thing is, really I'm, I'm like i, I do a, I do a podcast. we get like one point two million downloads like a year, like over like one hundred and ten thousand a month it's mostly young people. I just talk for a half hour on a topic but i didn't know i didn't know what happened. I was like, why did this all happen but it's all young people we have We offer the course at church we must have had uh, one hundred and thirty people in the last class I say sixty were under twenty five so Juniors and seniors who are mature come to the course with one of the adult leaders. But there is a group working on a youth version and a junior high version. But it's going to take a while, but there's a group working on it. It's a big project. All right. Hey, listen. You've been awesome. I would check out that book table. I'm not rushing anywhere, so you want to come and chat, ask questions. You're here. But the Lord bless you. Thank you so much. It's been great to be with you.